Hello friends, welcome back to Around the World in 80 Cigars with me, Nick Hammond. Pleasure to have you with us once again. Thank you for your comments, your feedback and for listening in. Now we have a biggie for you today. It's a monster. It's been much requested. It will attract thousands of hits from around the world and it's coming up very shortly. Before it does, just to whet your appetite, I need to tell you that the audiobook of Around the World in 80 Cigars is now available. Yes, it's five hours of me talking to you. I read the book live and exclusive just for you. Uh, you can buy the book now from my website, www.nick-hammond.com. Log on to there. You will find a page. Click on the link. You can purchase a digital audio download that will be delivered to you via email uh, and you can put it on your devices, on your computer, on your iPod or whatever it is you choose to use and listen to it on the way to work, uh, yeah, before you go to bed at night, however you choose to listen to your audiobooks and get a real flavour of how I see those antics I get up to in the book. It's price £5.99, which I hope you will agree is a bargain. Uh, here's a little cheeky excerpt just to whet the appetite and this is particularly appropriate for today's podcast have a little listen in now as i take you to a moment when i meet the lovely giant willie herrera in esteli nicaragua it's a neighborhood jam-packed with cuban expats and there's a street called cale ocho that's the soul of little havana right there Cuban stores selling Cuban food. Cuban clothes selling cool linen guayaberas in bright street strutting colours. Bars selling bucket loads of mint infused mojitos. And every few stops, it seems, a cigar shop. El Titan de Bronze is one of them. Its appearance is deceptive. It looks just like another mom and pop brick and mortar cigar store, as they say in the US. And in a reassuringly old-school, comfortingly practical sort of way, it is just that. But it is also the cigar shop and mini factory that spawned the mighty Willie Herrera. And he is a great guy. Willie stands no taller than a wardrobe, and he's certainly only just a tad wider. He used to be a bouncer in a nightclub. So you'll understand that when I get to meet him at the Drew Estate Villa outside Esteli, Nicaragua cricking my neck badly in an attempt to make eye contact, I'm in a bit of a Lilliputian versus Gulliver type of place. But he's a jolly giant too. Big piratical beard, perennial stogie smouldering in the corner of his mouth, and a sly grin never far away from his lips. Just don't rub him up the wrong way would be my advice. Or he might use your body parts in his next blend for Drew Estate. It was Jonathan Drew who, as he has so often been, was first to spot potential and scoop Willie up as part of the DE team. Given carte blanche with the tonnage of tobacco that Drew has at its disposal, Willie was left alone for months on end so that he could have a play around. And the resultant cigars, stunning marks like the Herrera Esteli, have proven Mr Drew's profit-like powers once again. 
Willie worked in the Titan shop for eight years, first learning how cool it was to hang there, then learning how cool it was to experiment with blends, and finally learning how cool it was to roll them too. It seemed he had something of a knack. There you go, just a little soupçon of flavour to start your enjoyment of today's pod. And without further ado, we'll go straight into it. I will not go into a great ramble. You'll know who this is very, very shortly. He's a legend in the cigar industry. Hello, folks. Welcome back to Around the World in 80 Cigars. And I have something very special for you today, which is putting a smile on my face because my guest today and I have been trying to put this together for some time. And he's a very busy guy. And it's been a, a joy to know that he's going to come on. And we've finally gone and done it. So I won't waste any more time because I know he's got to go off to meetings. And uh, he's across in Miami. He's a very interesting man. He has achieved something that um, is revolutionary in cigars, frankly. He's changed the industry, literally changed the industry. And the brand that he co-created now rolls a huge percentage of the total number of sticks that are made in the world each year um, and has genuinely revolutionised the way people look at cigars, think about cigars and even smoke them. Um, I don't think it's I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that. And he's also moved on while still getting one foot in the cigar world he's now heavily involved in art which is something that's very close to his heart i know and we're going to try and, and have a quick deep dive today um i'd like to think that we'll probably have to come back and revisit at another time because there's so much to go through but um but jd is on the line it's mr jonathan drew hello jonathan Hi, Nick. Hey, and and I, I couldn't be happier than, than spending my afternoon with you today. <laughs> so uh, that's a great introduction, and I and I really appreciate it. And um, been looking forward to this. So uh, love all the work that you do, and I like to hear more and more people here in the United States uh, bringing your name up, and uh, around the world in eighty cigars. So. Um, thank you so much for the invite. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on, sir. I want to dive straight in, really, and something that um, that we both sort of perked our ears up at when we were doing an event a few weeks ago. You mentioned something when I was interviewing you, and it's just immediately made me think, and I think made you think, A, it was a great title for something, and B... It's also a really interesting theme on what you did. Now, for those who don't know, Jonathan, he was co-creator of Drew Estate Cigars. And back in the day, they came from nowhere in the late 90s to become the biggest cigar maker uh, in America. Uh, and that obviously means one of the biggest anywhere in the world. Um, and we were talking about how you went over there, JD, in the in the late nineties, and you started into started in Nicaragua, when the the boom was sort of just reaching its crescendo, and and actually started to come down shortly after. And you slept in on the floor in a factory there, and you started from the ground up to build this cigar factory. And we were talking about how things were now, and it was huge. And I said, "Did you ever envisage that things would get this big?" And you, and you said. Yes, I did, actually, because it was 
part of a plan that I had. Um, it didn't happen by accident, and it was a sort of something that we planned strategically for. And you also then went on to talk about how the life of a factory was something very, very different to anything else. And that was the phrase that stuck in my mind. So can we go back to that, JD, and talk about the life of a factory? What did you mean when you said said that? Well, you know something, Nick, you know, I have such a smile on my face because <laughs> when you asked that question, hey, JD, did you ever imagine Drew Estate becoming if not the largest factory in the world or the second, it seems to be a, 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 the big issue these days. Um, and I said, yeah, I, you know, we did believe it. We did think it was possible. I'll tell you one thing. While that is true, what I didn't foresee was the pain necessary. Right. And the ups and downs necessary to get there and forgetting even, you know, the biggest factory in the world or the best, these are all, you know, superlatives and things that I don't really get too deep into, but building La Grande Fabrica Drew Estate, which is now the size of three football fields and the most beautiful scenic factory ever created in the world. Uh, you know, um, we had so many of these visions. The thing that you never can anticipate is what you have to go through to get there. Sure. That was the piece that was so surprising. And that's a term I constantly talk about. I say, you know, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. And that's really resonated with my mom and dad who are, are antique dealers and who are very much part of my life uh, um, to this day. And, and, you know, that's the outlook that I've learned now in everything that we do, especially in, 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 because, you know, I'm, in in the art world, really the graffiti art world of which I'm one of the largest collectors in the United States and and potentially the world of 70s, 80s, 90s art, um, graffiti. Hmm. But right, isn't it true throughout all walks of life? It's just the, the older we get, Nick, the more experience we have, the more we realize every time you think everything is <laughs> running perfect and everything's yeah. hitting on all cylinders, all of a sudden you get hit with a brick in the head and you're like, oh man, where did that come from? Yeah, and you got to rebuild so it, you know, but, uh, so that's first, the second piece of, I think we're both, you and I kind of like looked at each other. <laughs> there was this like aha moment. And I, uh, you asked your questions are the best. They are the most riveting. They're the most, I, I absolutely love when you interview people and the interviews we've done together. And one of your questions led to this comment I made about factory life. Mm what that's like. And I saw you <laughs> jot down a note. And when <laughs> I saw you, I said, Oh, look at that. He's jotting down. That. I'm jotting down that note too, because yeah, I talk about it all the time, but I've never put it in my mind as a, as a term, as a, as a, as a term of art, as a, as something, as a standalone important topic. Yeah. Like the first time I heard in Forbes magazine in 2001, when they interviewed Drew Estate, Apple, Krispy Kreme and Harley Davidson in an issue wow. that they called cult brands. Right. I remember going back to my business partner, Marvin, at the time, and I said, guess what we are? What was I said, we're a cult brand, bro. We're a cult brand. And that journey of 25 years from a cult brand to a trust brand, that's that marathon. But when, when, we, when I said it, we both looked at each other. Factory life is... Uh, is something that I've really come to terms with from a standpoint of the best years of my life. Um, the best years of my life 
were moving to Nicaragua with 1700 bucks in my pocket, no money in the bank account because there was no bank account. Yeah. It actually took me close to 18 months to get a bank account open in Nicaragua. And a very dear friend of mine, Emilio Peralta, who's one of the head guys now of Bomb Pro Bank uh, Nicaragua, he was the one who finally got me a bank account. I mean, it took two years to get a phone line. The world was very different back then in Nicaragua. Many of the cigar uh, connoisseurs love to travel to Cuba, Nicaragua, Honduras, Dominican Republic. And really, my, my while I have experience in all of them, including Brazil, Mexico, you name it, um, my, my true uh, zone of influence and knowledge is certainly Nicaragua. So going back to those raw times, you know, we, we really started visiting. I started visiting Nicaragua not long after things calmed down following the Contra Sandinista war. Yeah. Uh, basically Nicaragua's civil war. And you started going to Nicaragua and you, you, every house, it was just everyone. If there were 10 houses on the street, 10 had bullet holes. Um, if there were, yeah, there were second biggest city in the country, um, Esteli, which is our city and the city and, and, uh, and home to so many of, of the major cigar companies that are based in Nicaragua. Um, there were two restaurants really, you know, uh, to go to and, and two discotheques as well, interestingly enough. And, and, um, the place was war torn. It was, was really it, something. Was it literally rubble and, and, and sort of not much infrastructure that it was that bad? Well, it wasn't the way you think of like um, Iraq or right. Afghanistan and the way a city would look after it's just been blown out. But to give you an idea, um, the quickest way when there's snipers everywhere and you're trying to get from one part of the street, let's imagine like a city style street, right? Yeah. Houses everywhere all lined up. It's, it's, is to blow a hole in the wall and go to the next house. And then you blow right. a hole in that wall and you go to walk to the next house instead of having to go into the street and get shot at. And right. I don't want to pretend like I'm some type of military expert or anything because I'm not. But I can tell you that when I got there, the, the, the war really ended in 1992. Violeta Chamorro became president. They yeah. went through tremendous um, you know, uh, arms for uh, cash and getting people to give in their weapons and things de-escalated. Yeah. And um, I started really visiting in 1997 was when I started going out, 1996, 97. And um, by that point, it was still just just like one house would be knocked down. The next house would have bullet holes in it. The next house, piece of it was blown out. But right. everywhere, the people were reconstructing. You just saw everywhere across the board, people were fixing the houses and rebuilding the houses and rebuilding businesses. So it was going through that type of a um, rehabilitation, let's call it. And it wasn't just Esteli. It was every city. It didn't matter which city you go to, Somoto, Matagapa, uh, Grenada, uh, Leon, everywhere was, whether it was the north of the country or the area that we're in, which is called Las Segovias, which is a large part. It's the northern, uh, has like 16 uh, uh, divisions. Um, and early days for me in Nicaragua, once I moved out there in, in 98, I moved out there. Like I said, I came to the country, got to the Managua airport, had 1700 bucks and establishing our first factory was, um, a crazy experience. I mean, it was really basically a little greenhouse right in the center of Esteli and what we call Esteli Central. We have different areas. We have a uh, Rosario, which is a big barrio. We have Oscar Gomez. We have, so, 
we started off in Central, and for the first, uh, I don't know, year or so, I basically just would really lay on the floor. I had this little rollout thing, and you know, yeah. it, it, and that was just super rough. That was just. Did really they mind good. you being there, John? Did they? How did they view you? Did they treat you with suspicion, or were you always welcome with open arms? No, I was more than welcome with it. Nicaraguans are the most incredibly inviting people. I've traveled around the world, not every country, but many, and uh, they everybody treated me so good. I was really the only gringo in Esteli, which was a town of about 100,000 people. Yeah. So I was the only white dude bopping around, and you know, I just remember everybody. One time I had this rented car, and it broke down. I got stuck, excuse me, in the middle of the mud in this huge area up in uh, Jose Benito, the barrio. And I just remember these people coming out of their houses. Like I didn't even ask for help. They could see I was stuck. I was stuck. I was there for about 40 minutes, couldn't move the car. And they just pushed my car out or various times where I had nothing to eat. And, uh, you know, uh, RIP, God rest her soul, Candida, who had one of the small two or three restaurants in town. She fed me for 18 months without me paying basically anything and it, that's how nicaraguans are they're incredibly embracing they love everybody um and our town of esteli you know which was is is one of the 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 strongholds of the the sandinistas there's a culture there it was very appealing to me i felt very always comfortable and and in touch and and you know so that side of it i wouldn't that starts to where factory life starts to starts to come together yeah it starts to happen there at that moment so we open up the factory it's super small like i said it's maybe like 1800 2500 square feet um and we started rolling cigars there were six of us and uh we were rolling sticks and packaging up cigars kiki burger was helping me uh god rest his soul as well and uh, when I think about it, so many great people we've lost, so many, so many great pioneers in the cigar world, especially for Nicaragua. Yeah. And you start to become involved with your employees and with your supplier. Uh, you know, you start to have nicknames for people. We had one guy, uh, Juan Martinez, who, who not Juan Martinez from Playa de Nicaragua, right, another right. Juan who would always bring us tobacco. He'd say, don't worry, pay me later. Sometimes we pay him in six months, a year, four months, three months, whenever he had money, just give it to Juan. He brought more tobacco. It was always great tobacco. And, and we used to call him La Mosca because he had flies always. He was covered. This guy was a hard worker, man. We loved him. And he was La Mosca. And then you'd say, come on, let's sit down and have lunch. And, what happens is after a while, everything starts to merge together. Your employees, yeah. your friends in the, in the town, your suppliers, uh, journalists or people who would come to visit and, and everybody. We were, we were famous at Drew Estate for kind of bringing everybody together. And there was this really unique, um, somewhat spiritual uh, feeling that when you were at Drew Estate, you were on neutral ground. Mm. And and that's an interesting thing because you know you have a lot of Cuban families who've been in the industry four generations, five, six generations. There's a lot of competition and and there's a lot of rivalries. But here we were, this crazy gringo as old man Orlando Don Orlando Padron, God rest his soul, used to call me El Gringo Loco. He used to say, huh. you know, you could come to Drew Estate 
and we could have a dinner there for different manufacturers and everybody. This was peace right here at our factory. And it was a lot of art and it was always bewildering to everybody, uh, whether it was Nicaraguans or Cubans or suppliers from any country. We were the place to go. Was when that not came, happening before you? Right. That's the thing. You see, Nicaragua was the best kept secret. Nicaragua was, there were people using our tobacco in, in Cuba, people using Nicaraguan tobacco in Dominican Republic, Honduras, cigars being produced all over the world, but no one would say it has right. Nicaraguan tobacco in it. You know, Ernesto Perez Carrillo, he always impressed me, and Rolando Reyes from Puros Indios, these guys would say our cigars have Nicaraguan tobacco. A lot of people would hide that, which later on, and I understood why, because it had this weird reputation. But the real cigar manufacturers knew what Nicaraguan tobacco had to offer. They knew what it had, the strength, the complexity, the earthiness, the depth to that strong, heavy, full-body Nicaraguan tobacco. And they knew they needed to use it in their blends. But they, but they didn't – Nicaragua didn't have the, the venue, the cachet that it has now. So we were there. Nicaragua was begging to be heard. Nicaragua was begging to be recognized. So yeah. now you see everybody pounding their chest. We're the most Nicaraguan. No, we are Nicaragua. Everything yeah. Nicaragua. But back then it wasn't like that. So here comes a little stupid Drew Estate. We come wilding into town, you know, uh, music blasting, hip hop. You'd come near the factory. You would know where we were without having to ask. You could hear the music. You could see the graffiti artists half of the time in the street painting. And uh, we were just screaming Nicaragua to the world. And it was kind of odd that it wouldn't be the more usual suspects at the time to do that. So this was at a time where Nicaragua was um, late 90s, early 2000s. That's where Nicaragua started to put its flag to the world saying, stop using our tobacco, stop hiding from the fact that Nicaragua is king. Let's talk about it. Let's yeah. be about it. Let's bring people to Nicaragua. And that became a big part of the impetus behind Cigar Safari, which has been the leading tourism a platform for bringing cigar connoisseurs from around the world to Nicaragua. And you can visit that obviously on www.cigarsafari.com and which brings you to the Drew Estate website. And it's a part of our experiential program and platform that brings so many consumers to Nicaragua to be with us for a three night, four day tour. And that is so deeply part of factory life, right? If you're bringing hundreds of gringos from the United States, hundreds of people per year to Nicaragua to come and experience cigar tourism, think about how that merges with the, the factory employees, whether it's at Cigar Safari, which is, you know, perched up on a mountain crest that, uh, you know, beautiful. Hey, guys, I'm in an interview. Serge, I'm on an interview. So... So, uh, sorry about that. Okay. So, um, uh, we have, uh, all these people coming in to visit the factory from all over the world. You have the factory employees who are just like at first, like, Whoa, what's going on? They're videoing and filming and 15 people at a time shooting pictures and going wild. And <laughs> it was a weird merger for a moment. Well, and that in itself is revolutionary because before that, you had cigar factories and you had tourism. You didn't have the two meeting. Occasionally, if you went to Cuba, they'd show you around the factory, sure, but you weren't allowed to talk to anyone. You didn't see anything. 
you bought some cigars, you went away, and that was the end of that. And what made you think that, as well as running a factory and trying to build your brand and all the other million things that you had going on at the time, what on earth possessed you to think, I know, I'm going to bring loads of gringos over here and let them have a great time? But that involves insurances, and you've got to make sure that they're okay and they're not going to hurt themselves or that if they need it, there's medical assistance and and food and shit like that. That's all a whole different ball game. What made you pursue that? Because I would have thought many people would have thought, you know what, we've got enough on our plate in a minute. Let's just concentrate on making cigars. Yeah, that's Tupac Shakur. You know, that's that like thug life tattered on your stomach, on your belly. And you say like, well, what is it? You don't have to be a thug or a wild, but you know, Tupac Shakur, like what did he do to the world? You know, it's that authenticity, that living it, that lifestyle brand, right? Uh, yeah. How could one man be so powerful to change the world like Tupac? And and you start to think about, well, it's his music. No, it's it's his crew. No, it's it's what he brought to hip hop. Well, what did he bring to hip hop? It's that authenticity. It's he didn't just bring it to hip hop. It was style, culture, music, sound. You name it. Rivalry, everything. He brought he brought culture to the game. And what what we did was whether you look at my distribution patterns or our distribution patterns, the way we distributed our cigars, there was a lot of Wu-Tang clan built in that. And, you know, you could laugh or chuckle, but it was serious business then. And it's serious business now. Believe me, look, you can look at the numbers. It's for real. And, you know, that type of put everything in the pot, Turn it around, New York style, Brooklyn style. Go to Atlantic Avenue in New York, in Brooklyn, and you got, you know, you got the Arabs and you got the Jews and you got the Indians and you got the Italians and you got put them all on the street right next to each other with a business next to a business, and you wind up with this beautiful mosaic, right? Yeah. We wanted that beautiful mosaic, and what we did everything, whether it was our tourists there, and you know, when you were with us, it's not like visiting Cuba. Listen, yeah. man, I, I go to Cuba all the time. When you, when you visit a factory in Cuba, you visit a factory, you come in, it's about, hey, you're here, go get, you know, do your thing, you do your walk, you buy a few things, you're out the door. When you come with us, we pick you up in the morning and you're with us for three nights, four days, from the minute you get up to the minute you go to bed, every single day, every single night. There is no separate, hey, I'm going to do a little exploring on my own. No, you're not. That's yeah. a different tour. Go do that somewhere else. When you're with us, you're with us the entire time. So you're eating with us at La Gran Fabrica in, this, in the Cigar Safari area. You're mixed in with everybody. We encourage the staff mixing with the, with the, the tourism. And everybody is together. And that's where the lifestyle, the birth of our lifestyle Yes. At Drew Estate was built there because remember, when you think of Drew Estate, La Gran Fabrica, you think of it in three parts Cigar Safari, which is towards the edge of the cliff. We're up 150 feet above a ravine, two cliffs, two beautiful pieces of land that you're looking 150 feet down at cows and horses. And on the left are tobacco fields. And you have this, uh, the seven person staff taking care of you in the pool and the clubhouse and all of the food constantly being brought out and just that total hospitality emerging. You're emerged in it. Then next over is Subculture Studios. You got 52 full-time graffiti artists and you're there. You can walk in anytime you want and you get up in the morning, you burn in a stick, you walk into Subculture Studio, you're hanging out with the graffiti artists. And then from there, you walk into the factory and you're in a you know 119,000 square foot Drew Estate 1, which is what we call D1. There's two and three as well. And you're mixed in there and... You're just like 
you're not like walking into a tour in Cuba and going to the Partagas factory for an hour and the girl talks a little, throws you out the door. You are with us and you're, and you know, we say, Hey, put on your music. And the other guy puts on opera and we're checking out some opera. And the next guy said, Hey man, could we have an hour or two? And we're in the pool before we go to the farms and we're in the pool, which is right there. So that factory life for Drew estate is so vastly different than any tourism you've ever been on uh, with indifference to which factory it is anywhere in the world, both because our facilities perched on this mountain crest, the differences between, you don't have to say to yourself, whoa, you know, they're going to be blasting hip hop. No, man, you're going to be drinking the best wine, the best bourbons, the best beer, where we mix it up. We have things moving and turning where, you know, it's constantly refreshing. We're eating naka tamale or gallo pinto. And the, the, sometimes we'll have some people come play music for us and we're all there hanging out. And it's an experience, Nick, that, you know, f- that's the hospitality side of it. That, and is that, that, that was obviously, there's that, as you say, the hospitality tourism, but it's also subliminally selling, of course. Um, it, how sort of where do you see that in terms of the, where it sits with the brand? Is that still a huge part of what you do? Yeah, I mean, when you say selling, I mean, you know, um, uh, I mean, by that, I mean by that, the brand, you know, you're reinforcing the brand in, in a true way. I don't mean that that you're trying to sell cigars to people you know, sticking them under their nose, but you're showing them what you're about, aren't you? Yeah, totally. And, and, and selling as well. I think it's all good. You know, uh, um, first of all, really, this is the difference. I'm glad you brought this up between what I call, you know, a branded house or a house of brand experience. So when we think of our, what I call non-product experiential brands, uh, Cigar Safari was the first and continues to be the one nearest and dearest to my heart. So we have barn smokers, which many of our, our American, mm-hmm. uh, North American guests come. We, we get Euro- Europeans and, and international as well. But those are five different uh, giant events that we do throughout the United States, Kentucky, uh, Connecticut, Florida, Louisiana, and Pennsylvania. You know, you're talking about a thousand people per event. It's just massive yeah. at um, these giant tobacco farms that we work with in the United States. And people wait all year for for these five events. They're just incredible weekend events. Incredible. That's Barn Smoker. But Cigar Safari, you know, when you really think of the difference, like what is the difference of a branded house experience versus house of brands? You know, for us, mm-hmm. people to walk away and say, you know why I love Drew Estate? I love the way that they treat their employees. I love the fact that they have the they pay the most in the country and that's proven it's known they that they have a medical facility on board that we have insurance for people who get sick or die even you know i mean we have such a thousands of people who work there i mean people get older and they, you know things happen sure. and you know we're very paternalistic and there's a lot of people there's so many good cigars you can't say a drew estate cigar is better than a padrone or a padrone's better than a hoya or an oliva or perdomo or, or pepin they're all the best they're they're all great. It's what it's what people. So it, you're not competing from a standpoint of who makes a better cigar. That's all no. bullshit to me. But what does matter to me is how do you take care of your employees? What does matter to me is what path in their career can they can they move to as they work hard and to, to, to help you ideate and create new things or manage staff really really well or. You know, and creating pathways for people to advance. 
Um, there's nobody like Drew Estate when it comes to cross-cultural communications or when it comes to bringing people from Nicaragua to the United States or from the United States to Nicaragua. That is incredibly important to be able to have that bond because what are we? We, we are rebirth of cigars. We're not defined. We're like Tesla, and I've always been like that. We're not defined as a cigar company. Okay, we, we are as much graffiti, we are as much, you know, art as we are. There's so much soul and essence into this company. Our monetization platform happens to be on Puros and Cigar, to, you know, twigs rolled up in a tube. And yep. that is the, the monetization piece of it. But we are so much deeper and so much more than just, a, a, than just making cigars and selling cigars. And that alone is a tremendous feet in and of itself just to be a true manufacturer of cigars to, yes. to buy leaf process leaf work the leaf create a blend keep the blend consistent now try doing that 225,000 250,000 sticks per day exactly and 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 you the thing to you've got against you when you start i'm i'm guessing is that people immediately at first go well it's just a gimmick it's all smoke and mirrors it's a lot of noise very flash but do they really know what they're on about yeah hey listen you know i walk down the street i got a swagger ain't a question about <laughs> it you might get knocked out if, if you bump into my swinging arms uh it's there and we're we're not you know afraid to admit it you know and but i'll tell you what you want to know the company with the biggest heart? That's us. That's Drew Estate. You want to know the company who 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 who's got the biggest love? That's Drew Estate. I, I believe this to, in my soul that you know uh, spending the time with each consumer. People would say, JD, I, I can't understand that you have a line of 80, 90, 100, 200, 300 people. How did you spend 10 minutes each, 15 minutes per person? Ma'am, I would walk to my car after an event and they would have to lower me into the car because my back, more than 25% of the time, I was on a cane. And people really? say, JD, you're, yeah, Nick, man. I mean, barn smoker after barn smoker, big smokes, um, uh, uh, the Dortmund show. Uh, various uh, shows, uh, IPCPR shows or RTDA shows where I was driving around a little scooter with a cane because my commitment to standing in one place, meeting one person after the next, after the next, after the next, and spending time with them. You had guys, grown men crying, tell you their life story or how they went through their divorce or their mm. pops, their best times ever smoking was with their father. And I wish, you know, I could be with him now. And your cigars remind me of him. Soldiers who've lost their compadres, uh, who, who, who um, got shot down on whatever side, I ain't political, this and that. And those stories are us. That's what makes Drew Estate Drew Estate. So when you see that swagger, when you see that Drew Estate movimiento, and we're walking down the street, you might see us coming through or setting up a show. Believe me, when you come and you get that hug from JD or from Willie or from Pedro Gomez or from our staff, you're getting a hug that means something. You're getting a pound that means something. We're like We are there present with you. We are aware of our conversation and remember you for years we don't forget that is something that is so in our world today you are nothing but a number all right you a number you're a code you're a yeah. link you're a facebook dot 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 but with drew estate you're something much more important than that and that's something where anybody who knows us will know that a big part of our growth 
our exponential growth happened because people would say, I really love those guys. Yeah. I love my, my, my Drew Estate rep. And there's a reason that they love those guys and gals who work for Drew Estate. And that's because we have a thesis. We are the antithesis. We are Socrates. The thesis of, of, of you know, Maker's Mark, what made Maker's Mark one of the greatest bourbons of all time was the owner's discipline in responding to people and reading 10,000 letters a month and responding to them and paying attention. That, my brother, is really something that is so forgotten these days. You could talk about the skill of making wine is forgotten or this, you know, basic skills of, of basic prim primitive style things. You know what people forget to do? Be, have self-awareness of each other and to, to love each other and to, you know, and to mean what they say when they say, you know, I'm thank you for coming to my event or you traveled here to Nicaragua to be with us for three nights. I mean, dudes leave our facility with tears in their eyes when I they get on that it. bus, yeah. you know, so that's the difference maker. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you're still doing that to some degree that, you know, you, I still see you about the place. You're still pressing the flesh. You're still doing things like talking to me. Did you ever reach the stage or have you ever reached the stage where you think, man, I've got to back off because this is just too much. Yeah, I've gone through already, like, let's call it a filter, right? I probably yeah. am on my fourth filter where I really? filtered down from, sure, I, I lived in Nicaragua. Listen, one of the things we didn't talk about is I didn't just live in Nicaragua. I lived in Nicaragua for 19 years. My first six years, I really didn't come home that much at all other than to see my parents twice a year and go right. to the IPPR show, back then the RTDA. I lived in Nicaragua in the factory. That is the difference maker right there. I didn't live two blocks away. I didn't come down once a month. I didn't come down twice a year to go see yeah. how my production's doing. I lived inside the facility from day one until the very end, which was 2014, when we sold the company and also when it was time for me to come home and spend more time with my mom and dad and be in the U.S. a little bit more. It was a new stage in my life. Right. So for me... I've gone through numerous filters and now in terms of finding more time for JD and yeah. I've gone through a tremendous guilt of not being able to answer as many questions, not being able to correspond as much. And I'm a little bit more selective now with who I spend time with. It's not necessarily because they're a huge customer. Like you would think like I spend all this time with Cigars International, these huge, huge customers. We have incredible staff. So right. I don't have to, you know, play where the sales guy hat and the, the, this guy hat. And I like production. I like factory work. I like working with Willie Herrera, working with Pedro, working with the guys on the, on the pr production side or marketing side to tell our story and um, I get rewarded along the way to be able to uh, meet incredible people like yourself, you know, authors, uh, people who um, tell the stories of themselves or others. And you, I learned – so it's natural to, to go through – it's natural to go through uh, that journey and – as we get a little older, 
we start to, I wouldn't say appreciate life more, but start to realize that we took a lot of it for granted and that time mm-hmm. is really, really precious. And you, you know, those, so those are changes that have happened, of course. So in your fourth filter, what does that involve now? I know that you've got your, you've got your spirit brand and, and, and art, as you've said, has always played a huge part in your life. How do you sort of split up your time? Is it, are you a regimented sort of person or do you try not to plan every last minute of every last day? No, it's funny. I am highly regimented, um, highly regimented. Uh, my, my responsibilities at Drew Estate are still my number one, right. um, number one priority, obviously other than, than, than family. Uh, yeah. My heart is 100% first and foremost with Drew Estate. Uh, um, they brought me back in the CEO of the company, who's my boss. One of the first things he did when he became CEO was he brought me back in as president because after we sold the company, um, I spent a couple of years on the road shaking hands, which I think had an incredible effect for the company. And I enjoyed it, but I really am an operations guy. Right. So he brought me back to an operations position. So I am still the president of the company. I work everything from, you know, creating the strategic company-wide strategic objectives to the, and not by myself, obviously, you know, I'm one of these guys who like, I don't like doing anything like um, based on rank. For me, it's all about logic. Logic always prevails. Uh, The democratization of Drew Estate is a very democratic company, you know, so I I love the, 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 um, the juxtaposition of thoughts and emotions and philosophies of so many of the different people here, I stay highly regimented. I begin every day from 10 to 11 o'clock. I have my first, what's called uh, within the marketing department. That's every single day of the week. We have our 10 to 11 morning call. And that's where, you know, obviously we we talk about a variety of issues. And then throughout the day, um, I spend my my full working day is Drew Estate, top to bottom. And then um, separately, you know, I do events at night sometimes. I don't do that many, about 14, 15 events a year. Right. Which I really enjoy. Um, And then I travel to the barn smokers, all five, and I do some of the cigar safaris separately from that as well as getting healthy and spending time you know walking and 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 doing some athletic stuff now um uh my two main things that i really spend time with and they are structured is graffiti art you know uh europeans really understand graffiti so graffiti's birthplace theoretically, you know, you could say it came from Africa through the Caribbean to New York or for, but there's a lot to discuss in that. But the bottom line is graffiti's birthplace is truly New York, Brooklyn, and the most important, the Bronx, Brooklyn, Manhattan, that whole the five boroughs. And uh, the early days of graffiti, the late seventies, the eighties, 81 to 86, particularly all the way up into the mid nineties, that for me is an endless journey. I, I am a ferocious collector Hmm. Uh, these pieces of art can range, you know, from a few thousand dollars into the millions. Really? Um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Dondi White, Ram LZ, Futura 2000, Crash, uh, uh, Basquiat, Keith Haring, um, Lady Pink, uh, and, and many names that I can, you know. And is this layer. stuff that would have been on the walls as you walked past when you were growing up then? No, no. 
I grew up on Long Island, and okay. uh, it wasn't really on the walls of Long Island, but. Uh-huh. I would spend a lot of time in, in the New York City with my mom and dad. My parents are Brooklynites and city people. So okay. we did at least one day a week in, in Manhattan for Chinatown. And, and even through law school, you know, you know, I did graduate number uh, seven in my class in law school, right? Did you? Amazing. Yeah, from the bottom. They were, I was the worst. There was 157 students. I was seventh from, from, the, from the bottom. But... All throughout even law school, you know, I always spent one day a week with my parents in Chinatown. So, you know, throughout my youth and then certainly throughout my life, I was always highly in touch with graffiti and mesmerized by it. But I've been collecting now since um, 1996, 1997, collecting wow. graffiti, graffiti art. And as the years have progressed, I've, you know, my, my bank account has changed and I've been able to uh, to collect better works and more highly sought after works and even uh, a very strong handful of masterpieces. Some of the greatest graffiti works ever made in history uh, reside in the, in the Woodward safe house collection. And even here, as a matter of fact, I'll give a big shout out to the museum of graffiti. Um, the very first museum of graffiti, actually years and years ago, uh, Martin Wong, God rest his soul. He, he had the museum of graffiti in Manhattan in the old Pearl, Pearl Paint building or around, he worked at the Pearl Paint building, but here in Wynwood, Miami, we have the Museum of Graffiti and a great portion of the 80s pieces there are my pieces and I work with them uh, a lot. So I love that piece of it. And then we have um, uh, Wynwood, which is my neighborhood, which is the capital of the United States for graffiti art here in, in Miami. It's moved, it's shifted to here. Tony Goldman, who passed away a couple of years ago, he really was responsible for creating Soho, New York City. When you go to the Soho district, yeah. uh, Tony Goldman was the visionary behind that. Then later in 92, he created South Beach, the way we look at South Beach now. Mm-hmm. And then he did Wynwood in 2010. So I jumped on board and became part of that movement. I live here as well as I'm a building owner here. And we're opening up uh, Wynwood's uh, largest bar, because, you know, I'm huge into hospitality. I like yeah. being the host. And, and uh, it's going to be off the chain. That's going to happen in October called The Winwood uh, Bar and Lounge. Amazing. So um, everything that I do, I love to bring all influences. Everything for me is a collaboration. We've learned recently so much about collaboration. What does it mean to collaborate? How does Nike work with Off-White or how does, uh, um, you know, uh, potentially Apple working with whether it's Nissan or, or whatever it is that collaboration has become so deeply. If you look at your estate, look how we work with Pappy Van Winkle or with yeah. M and Paul Rosenberg or how we've worked with, you know, even Rocky Patel with Java. We are a collaborative company. And that's because our philosophy is based in the mixing of elements, which is all based from graffiti. The Instagram is, is, is an outreach of graffiti. It's about getting up. What do you do if you're a graffiti artist? You get on that wall, right? Yep. You bend that wall up. You put up your name. You put up a piece of art. You know it's transient. You know it's going to get covered. You don't yes. come there with a bat in your gang and say, hey, listen, you covered up my artwork. You know it's going to get covered. It's only there for a moment in time. And that 
feeling of getting up, of putting your graffiti on a train and then watching the train go from Brooklyn to Manhattan, that feeling of seeing your train with your tag, whether you're Futuro or Dandi or, or, or any of the greats who've, who've, who've done it, Lee, and that feeling, you know, that's very similar to Instagram, isn't it? You go and you post your piece, you put it up, everybody sees right. it, you get likes 500 likes and people go yo that was so dope that was so cool and they learn from what you put up that's graffiti and that's about that's the art of getting up and drew estates all about that we get up you know you ain't gonna walk into a room and not notice us because we up on that wall strong and people see that drew estate name is strong we don't even have to put up our name on the wall we yeah. can we can put up a brand without putting the name up. We can put underground. You see that underground uh, lion on the wall. You know it's Drew Estate. You see a dirty rat up on the wall. You know it's Liga Pravado or a flying pig. You know we we are about symbols, and yeah. that symbols bring all of that pain and emotion and character and effort together. And and they those symbols tell a story and they bring you so quickly to who's behind it, you say, that must be Drew Estate. Damn. Definitely, definitely. And when you say collecting graffiti, how, you know, with what you've just said about these things are often transient pieces, how does that work? How do you actually collect a piece of artwork that's been, a, you know, is from back in the day? Well, I mean, these days, if it's Banksy, you can knock a wall down and take it home, but we, I don't do that. Um, I've seen people <laughs> do that with Keith Haring as well. But um, as graffiti moved off the wall, okay, so at first people took like the wall signs were gangs and yeah. a gang would mark their place. And then later those guys who were the ones putting up the gang signs, they became, you know, graffiti artists. That's partially the case here or there. But really the transition was Dondi White, um, the Michelangelo of graffiti, uh, late 70s painter, but his major years were 81 to 86. Dondi White was uh, the CIA crew, which was uh, crazy inside artists. Every graffiti artist who's incredible who has a crew that they belong to, who they paint with, right. and um, that movement transitioned from the wall. Excuse me, from the train, from the subways, the trains, the train yards, from the train painting trains to graffiti to canvas. Right. That transition happened at the Fun Gallery, downtown New York City. You had Tony Shafrazi, you had Leo Castelli, some of the early graffiti, uh, some of the early art um, uh, dealers, and then came the Fun Gallery. Patty Astor, uh, Fab Five Freddy, if you remember, Yo MTV Raps, right? You had Yo MTV Raps, Fab Five Freddy. Uh, you had Madonna, you had CBGBs, okay? So CBGBs, The Clash, and Futura would travel with The Clash doing their artwork. You had, you know, Basquiat and Keith Haring and Madonna and CBGBs and, and Studio 54 and then Club 57, all of where downtown met uptown, all in downtown Manhattan. Everything came together and became the birthplace of Graffiti moving from the from the train or the wall to the canvas. That explosive moment in time is where hip hop was created the way we know hip hop now. So you had all the, the four elements that came together, which was B-Boy, 
which was break dancing. You had yeah. hip hop, you had graffiti, and you had you had um, that cultural movement all came together, and that broke the chains of uh, diversification. That broke the chains. That became America's greatest, you know, moment uh, of recent times where everything transcended um, uh, urban life, the struggle, having to prove yourself, being courageous, and also deep understanding of, of really our melting pot in the United States. And quickly, mm. quickly, the Dutch, the Dutch came in very, very quickly, recognized this incredible movement taking place. And you had guys like Yaki Kornblit, and you had guys like Spearstra, come in from the Netherlands to export graffiti to um, Holland and even the crews like culinary, uh, crazy inside artists, CIA, you, you had Shu who was the first CIA. And so the crew, the graffiti crews of which there are hundreds started also transcending and France became an epicenter and Italy. And they had a huge show in Italy with Basquiat and with Ronnie Coltrone and with, um, you know, major graffiti artist, uh, Richard Hamilton, uh, called Fronte, uh, Arte de Frontiera in the mid 80s, 85. And the world changed. Graffiti changed the world, period. And uh, Drew Estate builds on that because we've always engaged this authenticity, getting up being up, being in your face. You know, when you smoke a Drew Estate cigar, we're not smoking something that's meant to be super subtle, like a oh. Cuban cigar. No, that's a very good point. There's nothing subtle about it. I, no, totally... we're not making Cuban cigars. The Cubans make great Cuban cigars. We don't need to do what they do. You know, all yeah. these cigar manufacturers want to make Cuban cigars. I don't know why. Cuba makes great cigars. Why are you trying to make what Cuba makes? <laughs> Drew Estate... We make Nicaraguan cigars, but more importantly, we make we make cigars that when you smoke them, you go, holy shit, whoa, that is heavy bomb material. If it's Liga Privada, it's going to blow your, it's big, it's heavy, it's meaty, it's rich. It's You're not going to need to search for that. You know, in the back of my palate somewhere, I'm tasting a little bit of spice. <laughs> no, we're going to dump spice and hit you in the head so that you remember it. From that minute forward, from the second you light up our sticks, it's the same philosophy. If you're a break dancer, you're, gonna, you're going to own the crowd. If you're the gladiator in the movie, you are going to win the crowd. You gotta be big, you gotta be bold, you gotta be live. And with our cigars, you know, whether I was the master blender earlier on and then Nick Melillo and Steve kind of together and now with Willie, those cigars got to be big and they gotta taste as soon as you burn that, that, that stick, you got to say, whoa, whether that's a tobacco special that's, you know, coffee and, and cigars together, whether that's a Kentucky fire cured where we put tobacco into curing barns and burn fire for, for uh, we basically smoke the cigars for six days on, one day off, six days on, or bury barrels under the ground for a year and turn it into a sappy material like for the Pappy Van Winkle. When you smoke our cigars, you're going to get hit over the head with, with, a, with a flavor bomb. And as a matter of fact, you heard that ding back there? Yep. That's the ding of lunchtime. <laughs> JD, I mean, that is a brilliant example of, and a really good insight, actually, into how you 
did what you did because I understand better now what created you and how you how you thought when you started it. I can't thank you enough for spending some time with me. Listen, uh, you are a, a treasure to the to the cigar industry. I so much say to my guys, I really enjoy you, Nick. The way you your questions, you're so philosophical. The th- the so let me just tell you is that. I really appreciate this opportunity. I'll be putting this on my uh, company platforms and personal platforms. Um, I really enjoyed the conversation and I always do. And I hope we have more. And thank you for being a great contributor to the cigar industry and to people's lives in general. Um, You're really a, a special person. So thank you so much. Thank you, John. I really appreciate those words. You've always been an inspiration to me. So thank you. And, um, and let's do it again. We're on, man. Let me know when. Let's go. Thank you, buddy. Take care. Thank you so much. There you have the wonderful Mr. Jonathan Drew. I really hope you enjoyed that. Really rare to get Jonathan on his own, in a room, thinking about the questions you're asking him and not, you know, pinned down by a thousand people trying to get his autograph and stuff. Um, So thank you, Jonathan. Really, really enjoyed that. It remains just for me to remind you, of course, that the book is still on sale. You can buy a signed copy from me, www.nick-hammond.com. Very happy to dedicate that to you or a friend. Um, I must also thank Souter Cigars. Uh, We have two events coming up with Souter and Jonathan Drew, which you would might like to partake in. April the 8th and April the 24th, I believe. Uh, let me check my diary. No, I am wrong. I, I apologise. April the 1st, April Fool's Day. Uh, and on the 28th of April, Jonathan Drew himself will be with us live for an event. A fantastic event with Souter, so don't miss that. My thanks also to sponsors Rutherford's England. You must check them out if you're looking for a lovely, lovely gift or for, to treat yourself to something very classy. Rutherford'sEngland.com Well, that's it from me. Enough talking. Don't forget to check out the new audio book. Keep your eyes peeled for the next one, uh, next pod. And please keep the uh, feedback coming in. Love to hear from you. I hope you're all in good form. Stay safe and look after each other.